And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and I have a recording acoustic foam cover above my head, which means I can't put my hands all the way up to do this introduction, but that's okay. We've got a listener questions episode to get through today. To do so, I'm joined by two fine gentlemen. The first is a man who now has categorical proof that the United States is better than Ireland, at least when it comes to women's soccer. It's Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. Oh, thank goodness we finally got what we needed. I don't think Saturday was enough. We needed to play them twice. There, more, there is yeah. some some good news surrounding the U.S. women's national team. Ryan asked us on Monday why these were the last games before the World Cup because the World Cup was still several months away. And it turns out they are not. And nobody really knew that for sure until last night, right before the U.S.'s 1-0 win over Ireland kicked off. The U.S. will have one more game a week or two before the World Cup starts. And that, I think, is a really good thing for this team. They're going to need as many reps as they can get (laughs) to to continue to elevate this product. We saw a lot of rust on uh, on Tuesday. That's last night. We saw a lot of unconvincing attacking play. So getting one more rep out feels good to me. Uh, Do we know anything about uh, Becky Sauerbrunn, Joe, as far as you've seen? Uh, She came out, I think, early in that game. I know you weren't able to watch all of it yet. You will be. Uh, covering it a little bit more in detail for Backheeled. But uh, I think I saw her come out in the 28th minute, which is never my favorite thing. Yeah, I, I don't know what happened there. I haven't been able to watch the first half yet. Uh, I know that Becky Sauerbrunn had a header or, or some sort of shot go off the post, off the mm-hmm. off the woodwork, and that would have broken the, uh, the women's soccer section of the internet, and that would have been a delight to see. So maybe it was just sheer disappointment that that didn't turn into a goal on the <laughs> celebration of her 200th cap in St. Louis, which is where she's from. But uh, it didn't seem serious because she was on the bench in the second half and there were some shots of her smiling. So other than that, folks will know better than I do. In- injury through disappointment. I've had that a few times in my football supporting life. Uh, well, we do also have other happy news, like uh, the U.S. getting the win, like Julie Ertz once again uh, getting another half. Lots of changes around halftime for the United States. So this did feel like a good uh, tune-up game. Trinity Rodman comes on for Sophia Smith. We had Alyssa Thompson starting uh, this game. I think she ends up playing the entire uh, match. So we, we have more experience, maybe not quite as much as we would like, but luckily we have that one additional game. Joe, what are you all doing with the uh, your coverage of the USWNT over at Backyield? Yeah, so I thought, other than the Mallory Swanson injury coming into this window, which is a huge story, the other big story for me, Taylor, and we talked about this a bit on Monday, is Julie Ertz coming back. The number six spot for me has been the biggest positional question mark pretty much since Julie Ertz stepped away after the Olympics, and, and she was a part of that Olympic team that struggled, and you and I and Jordan Angeli covered those struggles, and Ertz was a part of that, but 
I think more tactical reasons were uh, were a part of the team's issues rather than individual reasons. And so to get Juilliards back, someone that even now at, at 30, who's been away from the game for more than 600 days before this window, to get her back and to see her playing this well, like I, I was I was genuinely impressed with how good she was coming off the bench against Ireland. I think you could see almost immediately that even a rusty Julie Ertz brings more to that position than anybody else we've seen in that spot since the Olympics. So the piece for Backfield that that we've got out there, I believe it should be up now or or close to now when people are listening to this, is about how Julie Ertz played this window, like for folks that weren't watching every action like like I was, and then like how she makes this team better, like why she's an improvement and what that means to the U.S. going forward. So I I am more optimistic about that spot now, Taylor, after like 60 minutes, 70 minutes of Julie Ertz than I have been in more than a year. Uh, well, that makes me very happy. I look forward to reading that. Julie Ertz makes the U.S. women's national team better. Graham Ruffin makes the Total Soccer Show better. Graham Ruffin also here with us today, a man who loves a rain postponement yeah, as much does. as he loves a rain yeah, delay, which is not very much. Hi, Graham. <laughs> Hi, Taylor Rockwell. <sighs> <laughs> Dumbarton, eh? What place? <laughs> All right, expl- explain for people who aren't on our group chat and don't know the pure rage that's coming out of Graham. We are going to reference this again later on when we record a <laughs> Soccer 101 about postponements because Graham has thoughts. Graham, Graham has thoughts and feelings. So Dumbarton FC and Sterling Albion have been in this title race for a long time now for the Scottish League One title. Our game away to them has been billed as sort of a a bit of a decider between the two teams for a long time. And so it had been postponed three times until last night when finally it looked like the game was going to get played. I was allowed into the stadium, which was new for me. And before now, it had been postponed before I'd even got to Dumbarton or just as I'd got to Dumbarton. So I was inside the stadium. And when you looked at the pitch, it became very clear that that pitch was going to be a problem. And the referee... Agreed and postponed the match for a fourth time this season, 50 minutes before kickoff. So it's been rearranged again for next week. I can't wait to see what sort of weather phenomenon happens next week. Maybe a tidal wave, a localized tornado. <laughs> it's it, it's going to be fun. Is there like pent up frustration, Graham? Do you think that's going to be vented when this game is finally played? How do you expect it to play out? So we played a home game. We've played a home game in the time since this match has been in the period that this match has been postponed four times. And you could definitely see in the performance of the two teams that there was a bit of needle there. So people flying into tackles and uh, yellow cards and a lot on the referees play in that game. So I'm not sure we've done a lot. We've chatted a lot about the history of rivalries. We talked about the, the Brighton Crystal Palace rivalry not so long ago. Taylor, you and I did a Soccer 101 episode on the Old Firm Derby and the cultural and religious and political differences between those two teams. I'm not sure there's a rivalry in world football where two teams, the source of that rivalry is a series of postponements due to the weather, but maybe this is a world first for uh, the Sterling Albion, the growing the Barton and Sterling Albion rivalry. I'm I'm racking my brain here. This does feel like a future Soccer 101 episode if we need uh, additional (laughs) info on strange rivalries. For now, though, instead of talking about that, we're going to try to reduce... Uh, Graham's frustration and uh, keep Joe's happiness just where it is by answering some listener questions. We've got six good ones to get through, starting with one from Thomas Buck. Uh, Graham, I'll come to you for this one so you can talk about maybe potentially happier things. Uh, Thinking about a Pulisic revitalization, says Thomas Buck, where might he best fit as a club landing spot this summer, assuming he stays in the Premier League and 
that the club stays up. My mind keeps coming back to Everton. I thought he was talking about Chelsea for a moment. I was like, Thomas, I think Chelsea are going to stay up. <laughs> um, not writing for my bias here other than a clear need for a goal scoring uh, on the club side. So, uh, Graham, what do you think? E- Everton for Christian Pulisic or elsewhere for Christian Pulisic? So the thing about Everton, so Everton's a big club. I think if they stay up this season, there's a good chance that they progress quite a bit under Sean Dyche. That seems like a good fit to me. But the thing about Everton is while wingers are crucial to the way that Dyche likes to set up his his teams, he wants them to get the, the ball out of their body quickly and whip balls into the box, usually for one or two runners into that area who can meet it with their head. That's kind of, I mean, I'm being slightly reductive there, obviously, but generally speaking, that's how dice teams play. And I'm just not sure that's Christian, Christian Pulisic's game. I mean, we've spoken n- numerous times about uh, frustrations with his deliveries and crossing into the box. So I think that's actually one a, a weakness of his game. Previously, I would have said Leicester City would be a good stylistic fit for Pulisic. Um, so obviously that might change now that Dean Smith is their new manager appointed this week. But over the last few years, Leicester have played in quick transition, and I, I, I've thought previously that that might suit Pulisic. And if you look at the space that Harvey, Bar- Har- Harvey Barnes excuse me, gets for that team in transition, imagine that for Pulisic. I think that could work quite well. Having said that, even if Leicester do stay up this season, it feels like that team might not be all that competitive over the next wee while. So obviously Leicester have been winning FA Cups and coming close to qualifying from the Champions League and playing in European competition. And if it was that Leicester City a couple seasons ago, then I would say that's the right team for Pulisic. But it feels like maybe he should be looking to a higher level right now. So another suggestion, and this might be recency bias, but Aston Villa. So they're looking really good at the moment. They, they could be in Europe next season. It feels like Emery is only just getting started there. The way they play, I think Pulisic could play in the position Liam Bailey has been playing in recently, where he has the freedom to start out wide and cut inside and play on the break and link up with Ollie Watkins. And I think that could work pretty well for him. Do you think he would fit with like the way they've... I mean, they've spent a lot of money. You, As you said, Leon Bailey is already there, is quite good. Would that be a Leon Bailey replacement? Would he be challenging for that spot? Do you just see there being more depth there for Villa so there's more competition for places? So here's the thing. From Aston Villa's point of view, I don't think it's a, it's a huge priority for them to go and get Christian Pulisic. But from Pulisic's, Pulisic's pr- uh, point of view... I do think he is an upgrade on Liam Bailey. I mean, Liam Bailey is a good player, but we're talking about someone who went for £60 million to Chelsea when he was at Dortmund. That that player is still in there somewhere, and we see glimpses of it every so often. I just think he needs a, a good run in a team. He needs a team that plays to his strengths. And Emery, if you look at how he has identified certain players within that team since he's come in, Ollie Watkins, John McGinn, Douglas Louise, they're all in excellent form right now. And I, I just wonder if he could do something similar for Pulisic if you were to go there. Joe Graham has Pulisic going to Villa. Do you have Pulisic staying in England or do you have him going elsewhere? Well, so I did some of both because Thomas specifically asks about the Premier League. I I struggle with Everton. I just feel like I know it's a big club and Graham, you're right about that. The level to me just feels low and going to a team that is very much in the relegation scrap this year doesn't feel like the best move going from one of the richest clubs and, and most successful at the moment in England. So just mentally, that's a difficult block for me to get over. And I would imagine difficult for Pulisic to get over even more so. Uh, so I came up with a couple of clubs. Aston Villa, I like that one, Graham. I went to West Ham for one of them. And I went to Fulham for the other one. So both of these teams 
generally like to play in transition, both as it stands, at least will be in the Premier League next year. Although, like, yeah, everybody outside of the top four is in the relegation battle, it seems like. So who knows? But I, I think there's an advantage to Pulisic to going to a team where he can attack downhill a little bit more. And Everton would, would provide that, but Graham, I think you make some good points uh, about crossing and some of the issues that, that can come up with clubs that rely on crossing a lot. So maybe this is part of Pulisic's game that can improve, but I just remember you know, Pulisic when he was really at his best during stretches of Project Restart, a, a game in particular against Manchester City, where Chelsea were not quite the protagonists in that match, and he was attacking downhill and just electric on the break. And he will have to improve his work with the ball. He will have those moments, regardless of where he goes, where he can continue to develop his work in tight spaces and, and whatever. I mean, we're not going to see Pulisic realistically improve all that much over the next stages of his career because he's, he's kind of already out of that stage. But I, I think a West Ham or a Fulham, a mid-table team in the Premier League, which corresponds, I think, to a higher level in other leagues, could be valuable. Outside of England, though, Milan is the one that really I keep coming back to. And maybe this is contingent on what happens with Rafael Leao, yeah. who will certainly be in transfer discussions for many, many clubs around the world at this point. But he's sort of anchored that left wing spot a, a lot under Pioli in Milan. If Leao goes, and, and maybe even if he's not, I think it's possible that Pulisic could earn a starting spot, maybe just opposite Leao. They like transition under Pioli, you know, not like Inter or Napoli or Lazio that really value the ball. Like they're willing to be a bit more pragmatic. And at the moment, they're on track either for Champions League or the Europa League. We'll talk more about that later. Just, I think, a lot to like about yeah. the idea of that move to Milan. That That's a great shout, Joe. And I, I think also it fits with Milan's strategy. So you're right. It's dependent on what happens with Rafael yeah. Leao because you don't want Pulisic going there and then him not getting the game time being the depth option behind Leao. But AC Milan over the last few years, they have actually looked to players who have been at big clubs and have maybe been, um, you know, kind of chewed up and spat out by those big clubs. So Brahim Diaz at Real Madrid, Tomori at Chelsea, um, who's the other one? Teo Hernandez from Real Madrid as well. So AC Milan have a history of looking to those players and Christian Pulisic as obviously someone who went to Chelsea for 60 million. It's never really worked for him there, would fit the bill in that regard. Couple follow-ups. Joe, did you say we're not going to see him improve all that much regarding Pulisic? Yeah, I mean... Uh, right, I feel like that's true at this point. What you is mean, he twenty four? You, you mean in terms of like his his um his like core skill set? It's not yeah, going to develop like, much beyond this point. Yeah, you of know, his I age. think you see you see central players continue to drop back as they get a little bit older. You even see elite wingers drop back to become wing backs as they get a bit older. Maybe Pulisic will do that, and that will you know continue his career for longer than we think of you know traditional wingers being able to to go for. But Pulisic's 24. Like, Graham, I think you said it well, probably better than I I stumbled it out earlier. Like, is he really going to get dramatically better? Is he really going to all of a sudden come out and, and be at West Ham or be at Aston Villa or Fulham or Milan or, you know, wherever and dramatically look like a different player? I I think those days are gone. Like, he's he's 24. He'll be 25 in September. You know, this is, this is his prime. Like, this version of Pulisic is probably the best version that we're going to see which is why I would like to see him playing for a team that might be at the game's top levels, that might be playing in the Champions League and, and getting some looks there. The Premier League would also be a good fit. I mean, th I think there are other spots as well, but I don't think Pulisic is going to become a, a magically better player ever down the yeah. road. I don't think he's going to become a magically better player, but I think he could become a demonstrably better player hmm. with the right manager in the right system. And I think if he's required to do things he hasn't done as effectively or at all, uh, especially recently, uh, then I think there are areas of his game that could improve. I think of 
like, let's say he goes to Atletico for a moment. I doubt that happens. I don't know if that would work. But there's no way he has the freedom to kind of just constantly dribble at people and, and try things in that system. I feel like it's going to be occasionally that, much more so he's got to work on positioning, uh, defensive discipline, and then sort of helping build out of that defensive shell. So I think in that way he could learn new things and could develop his game more, which is where I then wonder... Could he do well as a sort of depth potential starting option given injuries at Liverpool? Hmm. I mean, potentially, Graham, yeah. But yeah. is is that what he's what is that what he needs from his career? Because I would argue that that's exactly what he is for Chelsea right now. So hmm. it's, it's in a sense sort of a lateral move for me. Pulisic at this point needs to be a key player for Agreed. a team, even if that means a step down, which is is likely what he's going to need to do to be a key player. Yeah, and, and Grim, I think that's a great point. Like. The appeal for a, a move to Milan is that you're likely in the Champions League, at least as things stand now, and that you're you're a go-to player and you're getting some matches against other Champions League caliber teams throughout the, the league season. The trade-off is that, you know, I think we can all agree right now that the Premier League is the hub for the best soccer in the world. Like, that is where the money is. That is where the resources are. They are very clearly the, the bottom of the funnel that things are flowing into. So leaving that means you do sacrifice some week-to-week competitiveness. On the flip side, if you're going to a West Ham or a Villa or a Fulham or whatever it is, you're, you're not going to be in the Champions League. Like, you're going to be playing games every Saturday that are, are really high-quality matches but you lose out on some of those other opportunities. So it's a trade-off, one that the game's very best players don't have to make because they're at the top levels. Like they're playing for the the super clubs or they're playing at the top of England and they're playing in the Champions League as well. But like Pulisic between injury issues and and inconsistency on the field has, has really never for an extended period of time shown that he deserves to be in that spotlight week after week after week as, as disappointing as that is to say. Interesting. Uh, There are allegations that Joe is anti-Christian Pulisic. I'll just throw that out there uh, just so we have that caveat in place. Uh, I don't think you are, Joe. I think you're just a realist. Uh, I had Leipzig as a potential spot if he were to go to Europe, uh, but I'm happy to go with Milan if that's what you all want. I think Leipzig, the system, Marco Rosa and Kunku probably leaving. I think there are opportunities there, and I think it would help him develop as more of an all-around player. Uh, I, and then I like the idea of him going to Napoli because Napoli are just fun. But yeah. fine, if you all wanted him to go to Italy and you want it to be Milan, fine, it could be Milan. Uh, <laughs> Joe, you teased that Italy question coming next. Let's take a quick break and then let's get to Italy's top four in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back. Joe, next question comes from Robert Cordova. Which Italian teams do the Total Soccer Show uh, personnel think will qualify for the Champions League by finishing in the top four, assuming no Italian club wins the Champions League or the Europa League. Uh, So we've got 
some possibilities in there. The top four, as it stands, would be Napoli on top. I think we can safely say that they will yeah. be in the top yeah. four. They are, what, 16 points ahead of second place Lazio, who themselves are five points ahead of third place Roma. Then it's Milan, Inter, Atalanta, and Juve in seventh on 44 points after that points deduction in the middle of the season. Joe, what do you think for the top four? So, yeah, I, I do think Napoli will be number one. I also like that Robert assumes that that no Italy teams are going to win. The uh, Italian teams are going to win the Champions League because that does put Ryan Bailey's bet in, in the mud a little bit, mm-hmm. um, which is which is just funny when that happens. Just kidding, Ryan, if you're listening. I hope, I hope you win your bet and Napoli win the Champions League. But Napoli is the no-brainer here. Uh, Lazio also in a very good position, you know, five points up on on everybody else or, or more than that. It feels like, yeah, there's enough of the season left for them to, to lose that lead, but... It feels unlikely. I think Sarri will have that team in the Champions League next year, which I'm, I'm happy about because I like watching Maurizio Sarri teams and I'll watch them more if they're in the Champions League. That's just how this goes. Roma, I still have staying in third. Like I'm going pretty chalky here. They're on 53 points. Their underlying numbers, guys, are really good. Like th- this will not come as a surprise to anybody. But defensively, this Mourinho team is very, very solid. Their attack is is good, but their defense is great. They have the best defense in the league based off of expected goals allowed. Uh, so they are they are very, very good at being compact, at, at pressing in moments, and, and even using the ball to deny the opposition goal-scoring chances. But I have them staying in third. I think those three are the easiest to predict. And after that, it gets a little bit harder. So both the Milan teams, they're so close together in the standings right now. Milan are on 52 points and Inter are on 51 points. I, I personally believe that this Inter team is a better team than Milan. I think they have more quality. I think they are are playing a little bit more cohesive soccer right now, but I'm going with Milan. I'm going with AC Milan. They have 52 points. They have the one-point edge, which is something. They're both dealing with the Champions League, but I'm expecting Milan to lose to Napoli, and Napoli will go to the semifinals, and I'm expecting Inter to beat Benfica. Now, this is easier to do today than it would have been to do yesterday because we know that Inter are now ahead of Benfica. Uh, But I think that that is most likely as far as these outcomes go in the quarterfinals of the Champions League. So Milan won't have that to deal with. Uh, Inter also have the Coppa Italia still on their plate. So fixture congestion and that one-point lead for, for Milan, those are really the things pushing me in their direction for this. All right, so run us through one more time. Give me your four. Yep, so I've got Napoli, one, Lazio, two, Roma, three, and Milan, four. So exactly as it stands right now, there it is. Graham, how say you? So a little bit of disagreement on the third and fourth spot. So we're all in agreement, Napoli, number one. I think we're all in agreement, Lazio, number two. The progression that they have made over the course of the season has been incredible. I have started kind of looking out for their matches on a, on a Sunday night on BT Sport here because I find them so entertaining to watch. They have all the hallmarks of a Sari team. They have Zakania, who we spoke about on Monday, just gives them that cutting edge. And I'm actually quite excited about what they can do next season as well because if they can find a successor to Immobile and find that, that centre forward, I, I kind of wonder if we're seeing the, the, the birth of a title-challenging team this season. So anyway, they're my number two. Roma are a difficult team for me to get a read on um, because they have been inconsistent all season. And I I didn't look at the underlying numbers like Joe, so I'm going to be proper football man here about my opinion. They, they have a very difficult run-in, so they've got games against Atalanta, AC Milan, Inter and Bologna, who are on a real tear at the moment under uh, Thiago Mota. He's getting linked with all sorts of jobs, Mata, because he's doing such a good job there. So I, I just don't fully trust that Roma will make their place in the top four stick. And because it's so kind of tight between 
three, four, and five. Um, and maybe I've been swayed a little bit too much by that amazing 4-0 win for AC Milan over Napoli. But I, I have Napoli finishing above Roma. And um, I also Wait, have... Mil- Milan finishing above Roma? Yep, I have Milan I mean, Milan Napoli finish- too, but yeah. So I've got <laughs> Napoli, Lazio, Milan, and I've yeah. also got the other Milan club as well in Inter finishing in that top four. So I think Roma are going to are going to drop down quite sign- quite significantly. I think they're going to finish just outside the, 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 the top four. I had the same. Uh, I had the same arguments for Napoli, Lazio, and Milan that you all have already made. The only one I would add for Inter, the remaining games are against Lazio, Roma, Atalanta, Napoli. Uh, all of them very, very good teams that you could see being a struggle, except that I, I, I think from, from what I've seen of Inter and especially their recent form, it feels like they're a team that are very comfortable on the defensive side of things and frustrating defensively and then countering and scoring. Uh, it sounds like that's, uh, I've not yet watched the Inter Benfica game, but from what I understand, that is mostly how they managed to get that win yesterday. And, and so against stronger opponents, it almost seems like that plays into Inter's hands of being able to sit deeper and then counter. Whereas lately they have struggled to break down teams uh, that are like well behind them in the table. I think like their most recent game that they lost uh two to one loss, they had like 70 70- possession but still didn't create many clear-cut chances uh but i i think uh, against stronger opposition i think inter will pick up some points and jump yeah. back into that top four and i had roma falling out and and lukaku's back that's that's a big thing for that's inter true. he's he's just starting to regain fitness and sharpness and we saw him obviously score against uh juventus a couple of week- weekends ago so having someone that can finish the chances they create is is a big big deal for them I, so Joe, I'm just happy. I'm just happy that when Jose Mourinho comes on the show, and of course yep. Ryan is working on tracking him down and sticking a microphone in his face for 45 minutes. Um, I'm just happy that he's not going to be angry at me. He's just going to be angry at you guys, <laughs> and I'll just sort of sit back in my comfy chair and, and watch what happens. If that's the only thing that Jose Mourinho is angry at us for, I think we're doing we're good. Just yeah, fine. true. Uh, but uh, yeah, I look forward to <laughs> seeing we- who wins that one. If we have Jose Mourinho on the show and he isn't angry, yeah. I'll feel like we've been shortchanged. So mm. actually, that's 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 good in my book. I feel like we'll get quintessential Jose Mourinho on the well show. Well said. Well said. <laughs> Just a happy, smiling Jose Mourinho. He comes in with donuts. That'll put you. That'll put you immediately uh, anxious, Graham. Yeah, something's off. Something's <laughs> up. You're up to something, Jose. <laughs> I like that approach. Uh, next question, Graham, comes from Peter Shark. Uh, Timu Puki announced he will leave. I'm asking Graham all the U.S. questions just to give uh, Joe, Joe some time to think. <laughs> Timu Puki announced he will leave Norwich after this season. Is Josh Sargent a likely candidate for the striker role, or do you think they will buy someone new? Unrelated, but also related. Who is the new American investor at Norwich, and does that mean anything for their fortunes? So I'm obviously not particularly close to the subject and obviously when a team falls out of the Premier League I I fall even further away from the subject it's just the way it is I don't really watch all that much championship football uh, unless it's a big game but as far as I can see Norwich are expected to to move for a new centre forward this summer I saw some speculation about Ross Stewart the the Loch Ness Drogba who has scored 10 goals for Sunderland last season uh, this season he scored 26 goals last season Um, Victor Jokeris. Did you just make that happen? Did you just make the Loch Ness Drogba happen? Or is <laughs> no, that a thing that he's actually called? He's called that, and I've mentioned that on the show before, that Ross Stewart's uh, nickname is the Loch Ness Drogba. Oh, it's a great, wow. great nickname. But yeah, he is Scottish, as the, the nickname oh, obviously suggests. No yeah, and, and, and played played for Ross County as well in the Highlands. So that's where the nickname <laughs> comes from. Uh, J- Jokeris, I probably have completely butchered that 
surname, but he's also been mentioned as a, as a target. He's been brilliant for Coventry this season. He's on 18 goals in, in the championship. And I also think Norwich, whether this is fair or not, they'll, they'll look at how Sargent wasn't really ever able to do it as a centre forward in the Premier League and kind of wonder if he's good enough to be a striker at that at, at that at that level. Um, I like Sargent, but I do kind of have my doubts in that regard. And also, I actually kind of like him in that wide, wide role where he can join an attack centrally where the opportunity is there. So I think the Pookie-Sargent relationship has worked quite well for North City as far as I can see. So instead of kind of breaking that up and starting all over again, I think they'll just try to replace Pookie and keep that framework in place with Sargent in a, in a wide position. To address the, the second part of the question very quickly, the American investor I believe Peter is talking about is uh, Mark Atanasio. Um, he is the owner of the Milwaukee Brewers, and he bought a 16% share in North City last year. And as part of that deal, he gave North City a £10 million loan, which I believe was to help the club co- cope with the the costs of being relegated from the Premier League so they still have big wages they still have one of the biggest budgets in the championship because of that relegation and so Atanasio coming on board has kind of helped bridge bridge that financial gap there is a theory that I've seen um, that Atanasio might use this minority stake to launch a full takeover bid at some point in the future like he did apparently with with the Brewers um, and also cynically it's possible possible I've seen this theory raised as well that Atanasio has spotted the chat that Premier League clubs could be about to distribute more cash down the pyramid and that could make his 16% stake in North City immediately more valuable. And actually, I think there's been a bit... There, there, there is a trend of outside investment in championship clubs and I think it's linked to this idea that championship clubs are going to get a little bit more of the Premier League pie in some of the renegotiations. So that's just some of the theory behind why he has bought this stake in North City. So then, uh, like, the uh, the TLDR on that one seems to be that he he has bought in that minority stake, but it doesn't sound like that is then going to lead a massive to a massive influx of cash from him specifically. Maybe from the Premier League, maybe he has another loan no. in there. But in terms of how it affects their fortunes, I don't think it brings them a fortune. Put it that way. Yeah, the the ten million pound loan, as I believe, uh, as I say, I'm not close to the subject. But going on reporting from journalists who are close to the subject, it seems like that was to cover costs that were already on the balance sheet, balance sheet, rather than funding the signing of new players. Uh, Joe, I will give you the option then. You can provide detailed information about Norwich's financial structure and what this could mean for them, or you could talk about Josh Sargent, your choice. It's, it is a tough call, but I suppose I will do the second of those things. I, so Fine. I agree with Graham. And Graham, that was genuinely fascinating insight into what's happening in, in lower division soccer in England, stuff, stuff in there that I didn't know. So thank you for that. As far as the striker situation goes, I think Norwich would be foolish not to find somebody. Right, I mean, you're losing Timo Pukki, who's been such an important part of this club for so long. He's been a guy that you can count on, almost regardless of division, to get you double-digit goals in a season, which for a yo-yo club is absolutely massive. So I think they absolutely need to go find someone that can replace some of that production. At the same time, I would not be surprised if Josh Sargent got some run and got a chance to be the guy next season. He is their leading goal scorer this year. He's got 11 goals. Pukki has 10. He's been good, I think, for large stretches of this season. Went to the World Cup, was the U.S.'s go-to number nine at that tournament, at least for stretches as much as anybody was. So (laughs) I I think in general, this has been one of the better seasons of Josh Sargent's career, and I would expect him to get a a number of chances to start up top as the nine. Now, a lot of this could depend on whether Norwich go up, right? So the top six spots in the championship, the top two are automatic for promotion, and then the next four, so three, four, five, and six, 
are going to a playoff, right? And this is how the structure works. So Norwich right now are not even in that top six. They're an eighth right now in the championship table. They're one point behind the top six, so they're very, very close. But you know, their, their future is uncertain right now. We don't know if they're going to be in the championship. We don't know if they're going to be in the Premier League. I would imagine where they're playing their games next season and what competition will have a pretty direct impact on the profile of player that they're going that they're going to try to sign. If they're in the championship, I think Sargent's chances of remaining that the starter or or at least getting a number of chances to be that guy increase and if they're not, I think his odds become much longer. So, we'll have to wait and see a bit, but I think Sargent will be there. One other name that I've seen linked is Brandon Vasquez, which would be very interesting. Oh, I don't yeah. think Brandon Vasquez is a is a a noticeably better player than Josh Sargent. So if Norwich are looking for someone that's going to be the obvious number one, I think they should look elsewhere. But that would be an interesting storyline to follow if both of those players ended up playing for the same club team. There's actually been really strong links. I don't know if you saw this, Joe, with Rangers for Brandon Vasquez, which my ears kind of pricked up at that um, when I saw that on the back page of the newspapers last week. His yeah. agents are are working overtime to get him they are. to seemingly every club yes, in Europe. Yeah. Uh, well done to them. Well, I should say Europe and England. Uh, you all made that distinction, Graham. Uh, <laughs> you're welcome for the Brexit. England did. I didn't. <laughs> I'm just trying to make Graham as angry as possible as I can today. <laughs> uh, forgetting about the Loch Ness Drogba, uh, bringing up uh, rain delays and postponements, and now this one too. Uh, <laughs> Joe, I think you hit the nail on the head. For me, it's if they get promoted, I have a hard time seeing Josh Sargent being the number nine for Norwich in the Premier League. Uh, I, I will add, though... I'm not sure Team Upuki moving on matters that much uh, for Sargent because he has played as the number nine even when Puki was fit and Puki was on the bench, but he's also been uh, out wide, as Graham mentioned in some games, and he's even been uh, functioning as a nominal like number 10 for them. He did that most recently uh, in a nil-nil draw with Rotherham. Uh, and, it, and it's that sort of number 10 that then becomes the second striker on defense and you have a 4-4-2 shape, but... He was kind of the one who was given the opportunity to help transition from defense to attack and and carry the ball forward. I'm not sure that suits his skill set entirely, but then also I saw him playing back to goal, and sometimes that went well, and sometimes it did not. So too did his dribbling. Sometimes he would get past people and evade tackles and sort of ride the physical challenges. Sometimes he would have a heavy touch and, mm. and give the ball away when he didn't need to. And I think... With that in mind, what what I care more about than who they bring in, who they let go, is just that he continues to develop. I kind of, for his career, wouldn't hate if they stayed in the championship and he had another season to sort of continue to develop and continue to improve uh, and then go back to the, the Premier League with just another season of experience under his belt. But if they were to go back up... I also don't know if it's the worst thing that he then has to fight and really up his game pretty immediately because I do think that would be required. I don't think the level he has been playing at this season, though it is better than seasons past, and I think it is his best season, I agree with you, Joe, I think it still requires another uptick in form if he wants to stay as a Premier League player. Sargent seems to have the John O'Shea problem where he is very good in a number of positions and so that is always likely to keep him in and around the squad. He's always likely to get a lot of appearances but even as well as he's played for North City this season it still feels like he's not a player they're going to build around and I'm looking at who scored here and their designation of where he has played this season. He has played all over for them this season. So he's got three appearances on the right wing. Um, He's got five appearances in that central position that you referenced there, Taylor. He's got one appearance on the left wing. He's got seven appearances as a right forward. He's got 13 appearances as a a centre forward and then two appearances as as a left-sided forward as well. So 
he is kind of the attacking John O'Shea for Norwich, which has its benefits, but as I say, it has its drawbacks as well. All right. Well, I, I'm excited for the, for Josh Sargent, though. I'm very happy that he has had a, a better season than he has uh, more recently. So optimism there. Joe, coming to you for a futurism question. Uh, we'll yes. see how this goes. Uh, from Michelle Sellers. In 2007, Roberto Mancini said that future advances in soccer would not come from tactics. In Inverting the Pyramid, Jonathan Wilson seems to agree. What do you all think? And if you do think tactical innovation has a future, what do you think comes next? And where or who will it come from? So let's start with those two comments from Mancini and Jonathan Wilson saying that advances in soccer will not come from tactics. How do you feel about that? I, I've i thought about this a lot, Taylor, as I'm sure everybody listening to this and you guys can imagine. I genuinely do not know what I think about that idea. I have some thoughts on this question about sort of where I think the sport might be going and some tactical innovations we could see, which I I hope is what Michelle wanted us to get to for this. But hasn't there already been some sort of tactical advancement since 2007? Like it's been 16 years. You know, you can make an argument. I think a very good argument that there is nothing new under the sun, right? Like that, that we've done all this before, that seeing, you know, Man City, we'll talk much more about Man City versus Bayern Munich uh, on tomorrow's show. But, you know, watching that game yesterday and Rodri is like dropping into the back line at times as a defensive midfielder and Ederson is just straight up the left center back and build up for City and John Stones goes from the back line into the front line. And I mean, like, they're Nathan doing the total sometimes the left yeah, forward out like, of nowhere. Yeah. They're doing total football, right? They're doing they're probably doing it better. They're doing it at a higher level with more information and more film and data and all of those things with better athletes and I think generally speaking better soccer players as time has gone on. But you can make an argument that they're not really doing anything expressly new, right? You can always trace something back to 1931 in Hungary yeah. and and it's going to be the same, right? So I don't really know. I I'm a, I think we're like teetering on the edge here for this question. I think we should avoid it of having like a, a definition debate, which is just not interesting or helpful for anybody. So I lean on the side of saying soccer and the tactical side has advanced. Even if we're retreading some of these ideas, I think tactically Managers have more information at their disposal all the time. They're making, in a lot of cases, better decisions about how they should play. They're able to refine and become more efficient in their tactics. So I think there is still tactical innovation that we've seen over the last decade and a half. And I think that we're likely to see more going forward, you know, if we're defining advancement as like progress and better soccer and, you know, sharper play and and stronger ideas that are being distributed across the world. So I think we've seen progress. I think we'll see more progress. A couple of examples, and this is really you know what I was trying to get to. A couple of examples of what we could see. You know, Michelle asks, you know, where do you think this innovation comes from? I think there's still a lot of stuff to be done in open play. I think there's a lot of stuff to be done on set pieces as well. And that's sort of always where I think first is coaches realizing how valuable set pieces can be and actually drilling them more in training. Now, there's the problem that, honestly, set pieces are boring. They're kind of boring to watch because they take away from the run of play. They're boring to train because it's a bunch of standing around and we all just want to play soccer, not stand around and learn a basically an out-of-bounds play. But I do think if coaches can continue to innovate in that area, we're already seeing some of it, whether it's throw-ins, set pieces, kickoffs even. I think there's more work to be done in some of the trends that we're seeing sort of at hipster clubs or like very data-y clubs. I think that stuff will eventually become more mainstream and we'll see you know, best practices in those areas. So that, that's one thing. I'll quickly get to my other one and then I have some more stuff, but maybe I'll, I'll get to it later. The other Joe, thing is, oh yeah, go ahead, Graham. Go ahead. I was just going to ask, can you clarify what you mean by open play? But just because that to me is like, 
everything. <laughs> yeah, okay. Can fair. you kind of narrow down what you mean by that? Open play. Good. Yeah, good question, Graham. Open play, I think of as you know, every time the ball is moving, you know, without a stoppage. So open play would not include set pieces, corner kicks, even throw-ins or or kickoffs. Like any time where the ball is stopped, throw-ins, I, I guess, are sort of borderline, but you know, you strip out the set pieces basically and you're you're left with open play. So, you know, build up, possession, okay. all that kind of stuff. So I think there's the work to stuff. be done. Yeah, the fluid stuff, exactly. The the stuff that isn't interrupted. Uh, I think there's work to be done on dead ball, so the not open play stuff. I also think, you know, there's maybe some advances defensively to deal with longer or more games. Like, I don't really know how this is going to go, and this is yeah. something that I, I don't think soccer has faced before, at least not at this scale and in, in, in the current context. You know, there's a ton of games going on, and there's going to be more with Club World Cups being expanded that nobody asked for with more tournaments, all this stuff. It's always going to be more, more, more. And now we're seeing stoppage time emphasized in a way that we have never seen before. Like between the World Cup and now coming out of the World Cup in various leagues, games are just longer. And that makes it harder to press and harder to to defend in the same way that maybe we saw five years ago. So maybe there's some innovation there. I think there'll be a bunch of stuff that comes from data as well, like off-ball data and all that stuff that isn't really discussed very much. And it's still very unrefined even by the smart computer science people. I think we'll learn a lot more about the game from studying the the information that comes in the majority of the game when players don't have the ball and when they're moving around and how we can study their movement and their patterns and things that lead to goals and how players can then be trained. And I think this is where the tactical side comes in, can be trained and game plans can be created to maximize your efficiency, both when you have the ball, which I think teams are generally pretty good at, and when you don't have the ball. So I don't know, there's a few sort of scattered thoughts. I think this is a really good question. And ultimately, I don't really know what I think about it. But at the end of the day, I think there will be more changes and more innovations in our game coming from somewhere. Joey, is it fair to say that, like, broadly speaking, that would be uh, a request for nuance or an appreciation of nuance? Because that's kind of where I am with it, is that you can have little adjustments that can make a massive difference. But to your point... We can always go back to like an Austrian coffee house where they came up with playing one right. center back, but then four forwards become five center backs or something. Like you can always find examples of stuff in history, but that doesn't mean that they haven't been evolved or adapted or just sort of like uh, built upon, basically. Right. And I think understanding that nuance allows you to see those adjustments and that sort of evolution. Yeah, I think that's really, really well said. And that that nuance you know, becoming even better and more efficient, that advancement in some ways becoming better and more holistic because you have more information. Like so much of this comes down to how quickly ideas spread now because people can pull up Scout and watch a Hungarian second division game. And that wasn't possible back when these ideas were first being created and written down and talked about. And now not only do you have film, but you also have some data and some you know empirical evidence to go along with some of this stuff. And it's very early days, even on a lot of this, but yeah, I think there's room for nuance and, and iteration, at least on a lot of these ideas. And I'll give you a bit of credit, uh, from my perspective, at least, because I think I like things. I like a plan. I like order. And so I think I like to start off. You've seen me take notes and it's like, OK, here's their formation. Here's their formation. And I have sort of quit doing that and instead started doing that over the course of the game to to just see where like, OK, he is actually playing in this. But it's how I like was able. I mean, it's not a a, a, a hard thing, but like. Like the first way I was able to spot John Stones just playing as an outright central midfielder is sure. that he never went back to his right back position. And I think if I had just written John Stones is a right center back or whatever, I would have just assumed he was there and stopped paying attention. And so I think sort of 
freeing yourself from the he is playing this role this way because that's what the system has required in the past and instead watching the game and then appreciating that and then having conversations about did you see him playing as a midfielder because I like everybody has him listed as a right back but that's not where I saw him like I think having that willingness to kind of try to figure things out makes the game more fun it makes it more interesting I think that nuance becomes that much more important for reasons I'll get to later but first I want to hear Graham's answer to this one uh, my answer is not going to be anything more insightful than has been said already. So I did a bit of reading. Two soccer um, balls th- on the field, says Graham. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the next innovation. I've got I've got loads and loads of ideas, but none of them palatable. Um, <laughs> yeah, there was a, p- a piece in The Athletic by Tom Warville, um, which I found, it was from earlier in the season, which referenced the thing Joe was talking about with the number of matches in being played in a season and how Tom believes that this is likely going to... I mean, coaches are going to look at how Liverpool have struggled so badly this season and they're going to adjust accordingly. And, 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 you know, we've already seen counter-pressing as a sort of evolution of the high-pressing style we saw at the top of the game about 10 years ago. And so there's likely to be a greater intelligence used in winning the ball back in kind of high-value areas and and in the centre of the pitch, in the, in the middle and the final thirds of the pitch. I also keep coming back to throw-ins, being an, an area and we've talked about this previously and obviously Liverpool hired the the infamous throw-in coach that they got mocked for but there are 40 to 60 throw-ins per match in a Premier League game and in those 40 to 60 throw-in situations the, the team that has the throw-in loses the ball roughly 50% of the time so coaches have surely got to be looking at and I know that I know that throw-ins are fundamentally flawed in terms of the kind of mechanics and that's why you get Arsene Wenger suggesting that maybe we have kick-ins and I actually would kind of be in favor of that at this point but we've got throw-ins we're stuck we're stuck with them for the time being and it feels like maybe teams will look to utilize them in a more efficient way do we think that someone like say Johnny Infantino We'll hear this conversation and think, I don't care about your nuance. I don't care about your throw-ins. I want, like, goals that contract and then expand. And I want two balls on the pitch. And I want bonus spots, like NBA Jam style, where if you shoot from here and score, it's two goals instead of one. Like, do we think FIFA will eventually go that far to try to kind of continue to draw interest? Or uh, will we be safe from that as long as Johnny Infantino is focused on like tournament expansion? And <laughs> Just like trap doors that periodically yes. open yes. and then your midfield anchor disappears down Which into is, one into a hole. Yes, or the opposite of that going just full like Roman Coliseum style and like tigers emerge from the, the <laughs> trap door. And I've got a tiger on the pitch uh, in addition to Erling Holland on the pitch. I'm, I know I'm not supposed to like these things, but I would like <laughs> to see all of these at the expanded Club World Cup, please and thank you. Uh, he might be listening. He might be listening. So, okay. So, uh, I like the idea of playing around with set pieces from a rules standpoint. Like, maybe we have kick-ins and then maybe teams sort of embrace the idea that set pieces can be better opportunities. Uh, I, I just overall like the idea that we, we're going for nuance and little differences and then the differences that can then, like, cascade from there. Mm-hmm. But, Joe, so a point you made very quickly, I also think what Man City have been doing of late is – genuinely fascinating as much as it bums me out as a Man United fan because I think they are doing something that makes them more interesting than any team I can remember in quite some time that fluidity is fascinating that they can just pop up in different places they can have six or seven players attacking and one of them might not be a forward it might be a center back or two of them might be center backs 
I think I, I watched Bayern not know how to handle overloads because suddenly there was a right center back playing left back and there was a left back playing right wing. And, and that level, th- those were like rare instances, but that level of sort of fluidity, but discipline within that fluidity. It wasn't just chaos. It wasn't people just roaming over. It was really clear that if Ake goes here, this guy goes here, this moves there, and now we have cover. It was very fluid, but it was also very organized. And And I don't know how you defend against that effectively without eventually conceding goals, especially when Erling Haaland is then factored into that yeah. one. So I think Manchester City are a good example right now of a team that is sort of continuing to tactically and technically evolve, and I think it makes them pretty fascinating yeah. to watch. Yeah, and you know, you add Erling Haaland, you mentioned him there. He's Maybe he is the, the singular factor that makes this team different, right? Erling Haaland is maybe the one player on the field Maybe Ruben Diaz as well. That's like not really going to move all that much from their spot. You know, they have the reference point in Holland. He's going to run in behind, but he's likely not going to pop up on the right wing or, or not deep in central midfield. And maybe that's the that's the innovation from City, right? Maybe this is the thing, and we've talked about this earlier this season. You combine like the super technical, you know, by the book sort of squad with just like a giant dinosaur that's going to tear everything apart and somehow it works together perfectly. Like maybe that's, maybe that is new and maybe we've never seen that before. A, a, a not small part of me thinks that Man City could be the best soccer team that's ever existed next season. Like that they could have the greatest season of all time because it feels like, I know this is not what the question was, but I got to get this off my chest. It feels like City have become something more. We talked again earlier this year about, you know, their they're not controlling games quite as well, and Holland is scoring a ton, but the team as a whole is not necessarily better for having him in it. They're not necessarily better than where they've been before. Now they certainly look better than yeah. where they've been before, and with another month and a half of this season and heading into next season, if City can keep some of this momentum and some of this quality, yeah, they are frightening for sure. Yeah. I, I forget who wrote the piece for The Athletic. I want to say it was Michael Cox because it's often Michael Cox, but I'm not sure it was. But it was an it was an explanation of how Man City have sort of perfected their, the author referred to it as a three box four, which is the kind of three, then it's two in the middle. Like yeah. Yesterday it was Stones and Rodri, then two ahead of them, uh, in this case, De Bruyne and Gundogan, and then that front three. And that, again, is reductive. It's boiling it down to a formation. But... The argument, I think, was that they had been sort of building into this shape over the course of the season at various points and have now more or less perfected it. And so to your point, like with them perfecting it and getting the results they've been getting, I do have some concerns for the rest of the Premier League about how you compete yeah, with that. Yeah, good luck. Yeah, especially with the level of flux that many, many Premier League clubs seem to be in right now good. or will be in this Frank summer. Frank Lampard's got it. Yeah. Frank yes. Lampard has yes, got it does. under control. Frank's at he's, the he's, wheel. He, yeah, he's been fooling us all. He's like uh, he's like Matt Damon in Goodwill Hunting. You know, he works as a, as a college, as a janitor, and, you know, he's smarter than most of the people who go there, but no one really sees it. But in the background, he's working on equations in a blackboard, and one day next season he's going to unveil it, and Frank Lampard is going to stop Pep Guardiola. Frank Lampard has stronger, like, Casey Affleck in Goodwill Hunting vibes than he does Matt Damon vibes. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. I'm also going to say we're going to take one more break, and we're going to come back to answer the final three questions. Back soon. Hey, folks. This is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what... It's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be 
offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome back, Graham. Coming to you for Tyler Kinchella's question. What is the best squad you can make out of Chelsea's dead weight, and how would it fare in the Premier League? So Chelsea obviously have a very massive squad, but I want to simplify this as a group before we get into coming up with our formation, because I wasn't entirely sure who constitutes dead weight. This is a brutal conversation (laughs) to have. I'm going to say any player that's on loan can be added into this group, but let's run through really quickly. So uh, Kepa Aritza Balaga, for example, starting uh, regularly these days, but I would say that's largely because Edward Mendy has been injured. So would Kepa be considered dead weight or is Kepa in the first team? Mm, I almost think Kepa and Mendy both aren't dead weight. I agree. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, oh, that just frees Slonina? us up to start Slonina. So, yeah, yes. Slonina is our yes. starting goalkeeper. Uh, I've answered that one. Uh, Body issue? Uh, okay, we say, you say, I don't want to say dead. I'm going to say uh, reserves or first team. So, so Body Shield has, he started seven Premier League games since he's joined in January, which isn't bad. Okay. So, I so would we'll say, say that's not too much for. Okay. Yeah, I not would say dead. that's not dead weight. Enzo, not dead. Tiago Silva, vice captain, when he's fit, is going to be a starter. So I'm going to yeah. say not dead. And Golo Kante, not dead. Mateo Kovacic, not dead. Obama Yang, I would say, yeah. I, I would put in the dead weight category. Yes, he's yes, dead weight. Very much okay. so. 
All right, so now here we go. Now we're into it. Pulisic becomes a fascinating one. Ah, uh, not dead weight. Borderline, but yeah, I agree with Graham. Not dead weight. Ja Felix. No, yeah. he's like yeah. one of their most important players. Ruben Loftus Cheek. Yes. I say yes. I I would say yes, but the numbers actually don't back that up. Oh, so, but would he, we put him? He, see, I would like you're saying yes to putting him in the dead weight category. I put him in a dead weight category category because I just don't yep. think he has a part, a big part to play in Chelsea's future. And I think if they're going to be selling players this summer, he's probably going to be on that list. Yep. But he has actually played quite a number of games this yeah. season, so that's where it's confusing. It, but it never feels like he is the priority. He is a player that is particularly valued, especially by the present day Chelsea ownership. So I, I think he he is certainly in that category for me. He's a little bit of a, a John O'Shea, a, a Josh Sargent, if you will. Uh, what about Marcus? Bet- Nelly. It doesn't matter because Gagos is our starting goalkeeper. Uh, Trevor Chalaba. Yes, I would say he is probably dead weight. Given the, the depth of the centre-back positions, he is well way down the pecking order, I'd say. That helps my team. Joe, would you agree? Yeah, I needed centre-back, so thank you, Graham. <laughs> I couldn't decide which centre-backs to do. <laughs> Mudrick? No, can't Ooh, be. Oh, that's... It, so, it, this might be a subjective one, right? And all this is subjective because <laughs> yeah. given the definitions we've we've already laid out, we probably should have had Christian Pulisic in the deadweight category, but it's too late and we don't need to retread it. Um, also, it might be illegal for an American podcast to call Christian Pulisic deadweight. So that's probably for the best. Uh, but like you just spend $8 <laughs> billion to sign Mudrick after the biggest Instagram saga of all time. I, I, he can't be, right? He I, he cannot be dead weight. Even if he's not playing a lot, I don't think we can put him in this category. I, think this I agree. Is the, I let's, think that's let's the argument the ownership is making to yeah, the, the various managers at Chelsea. True. Yeah. Uh, he can't be. Please don't say he is. All right, fine. <laughs> uh, Mendy, we said no. Raheem Sterling, I would say no. What about Armando Broja? Broja. Yes. Yeah, for weight. sure. All right, cool. Uh, Mason Mount? No. All right. Dennis Gr- Grant, the face Graham is making right now, people should know the face Graham is making is one of such uncertainty. Wow. <laughs> he shouldn't be, but I kind of feel like he is at the moment, and there's a lot of speculation that he's going to go this summer, so maybe? I don't know. He's he's our first alternate. He's a, he's a, he's off off the reserve bench and somehow also off the first team bench. Uh, Dennis Zakaria, a player that I forgot was still yep. on at Chelsea. Yes, very much. Definitely. De- he's, definition. He's definitely. in my midfield, without a doubt. Uh, Chilwell, I feel like recently has been starting most games, and when he's yeah. fit, is their starter. I would say no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hakim Zayek, however, I would put in the deadweight category. Welcome aboard, yeah. baby. <laughs> uh, Connor Gallagher. Yes, I, I would say so. This, this is. I agree with you, Graham, mostly because I need another midfielder. But uh, this is this is kind of cheating. He's played in twenty-seven Premier League games this year. Like he is, he's very much been there. But if we're looking forward a bit and thinking about who's actually you know where on the pecking order, yeah, we can take him for our midfield. I, th- I think of it like if if a new manager comes in, whoever it may be, Nagelsmann might actually value Conor Gallagher. That is that is the thing with somebody like Julian. Well, apparently, Liverpool want him. Yeah, he's I mean, a good player. A he's a, he's go a very him. good player. It's just hard to play a yeah. lot and start a lot when there are forty five people in a squad. Uh, Reese James, no. Kulabali, no. Uh, David Datro Fofana. Graham. I had completely forgotten he'd sign for Chelsea. Go ahead and put that one on the list then. (laughs) That's that's a ringing endorsement for yes, he goes. Uh, Cesar Spilicueta, a.k.a. Dave. Oh, we need a right back, don't we? (laughs) I don't know if we can do it just based off that. Uh, I I mean, he's their captain, I I think. I I can't say no. Yeah. Havertz, no. Uh, Chukwameka? Difficult, because he's he's a young player, isn't Mm -hmm. he? So he's not being signed for the first team, and I don't know whether you would then... 
Is Datro Fafana maybe a young player as well? This is yeah, dangerous. Now we're, now yeah. we're going backwards. We'll just we'll leave Chukwuemeka uh, for now. We'll say Noni Maduake, I'll say, is definitely in the dead weight squad for me. Yeah, that seems fair. Another young player, though, but we need we need some players and, to pick from. And so. another January signing. Uh, and yeah. then uh, Mark Kukurea. I don't know. Not dead yeah, weight. I don't think so. He's not played well, but he's has played a lot. It's odd because Chilwell's in there, too. Uh, yeah. Wesley Fofana, No. Gabriel Sonina is our starting hey, wait, goalkeeper. Isn't, oh, sorry. There, wait, There's two do we have multiple? Fa- yeah, okay. This is... Yes. This There's is a, yeah, Wesley Fofana and then Dacho Fofana. Yeah. And then, so yeah, with all those, I would add Ethan Ampadu as a potential. He's on loan at Spezia. Oh, I would wow. add Malagusto. Malagusto uh, on loan, back at loan, on loan at Lille. Uh, Leon, excuse me, uh, signed in January. And then Levi Colwell uh, at Brighton has, I think, made... 10 or so appearances this season as a center back. Uh, he could be in that conversation as well. He's only 20. So we've got 11-ish, I think, players with all that said. How are we building this one out, uh, gentlemen? Graham, I think, were you up for this one? I always just go for 4-3-3 and pretty much when I'm building a team from right. scratch, that is the formation that I start with. And if I can't build it in that formation, then I will shift from a 4-3-3. So... We've got Slonin in goal. We've made that clear. Let, wait, yep. Joe, are you 4-3-3 as well, or are you building something else? My team is still missing, like, three different players, so I'm in, like, <laughs> a weird shape. I'm in, like, a 3-3-3 right now, but I'm hoping to add one, one more one more guy throughout this All discussion. Right. You both have three up front, so who are your three up front, Graham? Uh, Ziek on the right, Broha in the middle, Aubameyang on the left. Joe, how do you feel about that? That is also my front three. I had a I don't feel good about it, but that is my front three, yes. <laughs> All right, uh, moving to the midfield three, Graham. Um, so I have Dennis Zakaria, I have Ruben Loftus-Cheek, and I have Con- Connor Gallagher. And actually, I like, the, I like the balance of that as a unit. You know, having the, the kind of anchor, the protector in Zakaria, you have the kind of creator in Gallagher, and then Loftus-Cheek, who's good at carrying the ball. So I kind of like that midfield. Uh, should we go Malo Augusto as our right back? No, I, I have to veto that one because he was signed in January and the deal of the transfer was that he was staying on loan with Leon until the end of the season. So I don't know if we can call him dead weight when he hasn't even joined the club, technically, which Graham, is a problem for us because we Graham, don't have who's a right our right back. back? Who's our right back, Graham? That's my problem. So, so Trevor Trevor Chalaba has played there once this okay. season. Okay, deal. So Done. we can put him right back Love if that. we feel we've got better depth in central defense to get to put someone in there. Do we feel that way? I'm not sure. Undecided. All right, so that leaves us with uh, the aforementioned Levi Colwell, who I feel like I'm the only one who is mentioning. Uh, Ethan Ampadu could be in there. And then, ooh. Ampadu, I think, fits the bill because Ampadu has, has, he's not a young player anymore. He has played games for Chelsea. He's been on a number of loan spells. At this point, it feels like Chelsea would be quite happy just to offload him for 10 million to someone. So I think he is dead weight and he could play, he can play center back. So we're missing two other defenders. So I've got here, my back four is now Chalaba at right back, Ampadu and Fofana as center backs, and Lewis Hall at left back. Yeah, Lewis Hall was my left back as well. Fofana is bold, given that he's a £70 million French international or French under-21 international, but we do have to pick one of the big names, you know, Silva, Koulibaly, or Fofana. Yeah. One I mean, of them has to be dead. I mean, weight, that's the so. thing. Or, I mean, I guess you could throw in, like, that's where maybe Aspilicueta could be potential. But either way, one of them has to be. Yeah, to your point. So I, I guess it's, it's whichever one seems most surplus to requirement, uh, whoever you want to make that. 
And and so I thinking about how this team would do, I think the answer is not well. I, I, not only is there like no depth, obviously, but you know you're very weak in the back line in multiple different positions. Gaga Sonina, I, I don't know if he's ready to be a Premier League goalkeeper right now. Blasphemy. The front three is both old and injury prone and young all at the same time. And Aubameyang on the wing is is not something that I think he should be doing now at this stage of his career and probably never should have been doing. I I think this team is probably in the relegation fight, although there is top-end talent. I, I don't think this is a very good squad. I, I hear you. I, I still think that midfield three is strong enough that like they could spring some results against For sure. some Premier League For teams. Sure. If they're in the championship, if this is your starting 11 of the championship, they're getting promoted, aren't they? This one's for Graham. <laughs> I, I also I also don't think that front three is quite as weak as maybe you make out, Joe. So Armando Broja, look, he's not Chelsea level, but last season was really good for Southampton on loan. Hakim Ziyech, we saw at the World Cup how good he can be for that Morocco team. Aubameyang's old, I get it. But in the second half of last season for Barcelona, he was he was banging the goals in for them and he was playing left wing on occasion I guess if you can get someone to overlap as a left back and have him drift into central position then maybe you get him into goal scoring position uh, goal scoring areas but I, I quite like the attacking line I like the midfield a lot I think that's a good Premier League Premier League midfield the defense is an absolute mess but uh yeah maybe we, we can just be top heavy go PSG style I don't blame us for the defense being a mess I I, I just want to run through this so if we're if we have the squad that we have that we've listed here, we we you wouldn't include uh, Malagusto because you're a jerk, but also for valid reasons. But that's so Gusto. We we didn't include Barry Ashiel. We didn't include Thiago Silva. We didn't include uh, who else have we got in there? Ben Showell, Reese James, Koulibaly, Aspilicueta, uh, Wesley Fofana. That's maybe the one on the line, and Mark Kukurea. Like. That's that is eight players for four positions like that. That in of itself speaks volumes about this Chelsea team that they have so many different options, none of whom I feel like we feel comfortable truly differentiating. Like, I think you could make an argument for Thiago Silva being on the surplus to requirement list. I think at points this season, you could have made that argument about Koulibaly. It's very strange to me how good and bad this Chelsea team is all at once. Uh, I do not envy anybody who takes this gig full-time. Maybe Frank Lampard will find a way to work miracles. Maybe Christian Pulisic is the attacker they need. Uh, who, who knows for sure? I think that last one we probably do know for sure. I do know for sure, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's not it. <laughs> Fine. All right, let's move away from Chelsea to a very interesting question from Guy Yedweb. Uh Why is Ligon considered... Uh, included, excuse me, in the so-called Big Five Leagues. Does anything distinguish distinguish Lingon from, say, the Eredivisie, except for PSG? How far back into history is this so-called Big Five identified? Joe, how say you? Okay, so the ultimate answer to this question, I think, to really what Guy is, is asking is, it's included in the Big Five Leagues just because it was included yesterday and was included the day before that. Like, like It's just included because... That's what we know. Like, that's what people call it. And so this is a moment for us, if we all agree by the end of this discussion, that they should no longer be in that discussion. We can adapt a big four or a big one plus three if we want to do. Pre- I mean, we can do this however we want, right? Ultimately, there is no, like, governing factor. It's MLS the one. Right. <laughs> of course, Graham, obviously. And then Liga oh, Mekki. Right, yeah, sure. you get the idea. Um, like, there is no governing factor that says these five leagues are are grouped together other than really spending like like the money that flows in and out of these leagues is what has linked them together 
for such a long time. So from 2000, basically, to today, Serie A, the Premier League, La Liga, Liga, and the Bundesliga have been the top spending leagues based on transfer fees with little minor blips along the way. You know, Russia was taking over the Bundesliga in terms of the rankings, not in terms of like actual power. And uh, in 2003, 2004, then they swapped back a couple years later. And then Russia came in and, and cracked the top three around 2010. Then that swapped back. But generally speaking, like these have been the biggest spending leagues for the last two decades. And then you zoom in on Liga in particular and based off of FIFA's global transfer report, which is a more entertaining read than it sounds. I promise. There are some pictures. There's some diagrams. <laughs> it's not too long. As far as FIFA documentation goes, this is the best I've encountered. But based off of this document from the year 2022, France and the, the various associations in France, which would be dominated by Ligue 1, they were first in money received from transfers and fourth in terms of money spent on transfers. So France, we know, develop a ton of talent. Their youth national teams are ridiculously stacked. So it makes sense that they are top of the charts in terms of exporting talent and the fees associated with that. But they spend real money as well. And PSG does a lot of that. Let's not get it twisted. But there is still financial might in France relative to other smaller European leagues. Relative to the other four leagues, I don't think you can make the argument in, in, in that they're really like right buddy-buddy up against any of those at this point. But I think historically that's why they've been looped together is – is because of spending and then just because that's what we've done for the last, you know, however many years now. Yeah, there is also the coefficient rankings as well. So so I agree the term big 5 is this sort of unwritten thing, but it is also not as well. So the UEFA coefficients rank the the quality of each league in Europe and the top 5 ranked leagues are the Premier League, La Liga, Bundesliga, Serie A and finally Ligue 1. And you, and you have to go back to the 2015-16 season for the last time that that wasn't the case when the Portuguese top flight was actually above Ligue 1 at that time. And Portugal had that place between 2011 and 2015. But other than that period, France has been in the top five places since UEFA started doing these coefficients in the, in the early 2000s. Um, however... I believe that the Eredivisie, if things pan out this season the way the way they're going, the, if, if it stays the course of the, the, this season, it, it, the Eredivisie is on course to overtake Ligue 1 for next season because PSG didn't do well this season in the Champions League and the Conference League, the Europa Conference League, has added this extra wrinkle and more points that teams can pick up. And as Ed Altmar... Um, propelled by Georgi Mihalovic at this point, yep. are um, they're they're picking up some serious coefficient points in that competition. So, um, I don't know what happens if if their divisi overtakes Ligue 1 well, in the coefficients. Yeah. Is that a big six all of a sudden? No, but there, mean, there is that kind of ranking. Really, that's I think that's all great information, Graham. Really, my biggest takeaway, and I've thought about this for a while, but this is a good chance to kind of formalize it is is that it is silly at this point to call it the big five leagues. Like there's not a lot of logic behind calling it that, you know, when Ligue 1 has dropped, right? When they have not continued to maintain the quality and, and ability of some of these other leagues, it, it seems pretty clear to me that there's a big four and in the Premier League is the giant there. And then, you know, you're looking at Italy, Spain, and Germany, and then there's a, a, a dot, 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 and you're looking at France and the Netherlands and Portugal. Like, those three almost belong more closely together than the, the, the classic big five terminology. At the risk of sounding biased, because I think that's always the thing that comes up when I say the thing I'm about to say, 
to me, Joe, you said there's like a big four almost. In some ways, I feel like of late it's been there's a big one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, it's not English clubs winning the Champions League every single year. But I, like in Spain, you have the, the two big clubs, three if you want to throw in Atleti. There's a number of clubs, as we've already talked about, who could finish in the top four in Italy. Germany, it's been Bayern. But like in, in England, I think there's just so much money. There's so much strength and talent and depth and talent across the board in that top flight that to me, it's basically... England is like 1A, and then Spain, Italy, Germany would be 1B, and then it's like France, Portugal, Netherlands uh, would be the next level, and then after that, they're kind of all like lumped together. It's sort of how I would see the the categorization. Agree. Yeah, I I wouldn't argue with that at all. I think like... I think it is not wrong to refer to that 1A and 1B group as the big four mm-hmm. with just the understanding that the Premier League is is very much the top of that group. Like there's there's always been some league at the top. The Premier League is distancing the gap and maybe five years from now, it won't make any sense to have those things connected. Maybe there'll be a Super League and so things will be chaos anyway. But I, I do think it's pretty clear that on quality, France does not have the ability to compete with those other four leagues. Yeah. Agreed. I think, and so to the heart of the question, I think it is PSG. I think it's PSG. You can't sort of discount a league that has Messi and Mbappe and Neymar all in one team. And so you, I think they get that extra consideration because of that. But like Lyon, I, I think when they won, what, like eight league titles in a row, I don't think we were talking about the big five with France in there. Uh, I think it's just been the way things have shifted. And, and it is... To your initial point, Joe, a thing that happens. We had the big four in the Premier League for a good long while. Now we sort of have the big six and the question of should it be a big seven? At a certain point, if it's like more than half of the table, I don't know if it can still be the big anything. But we're getting closer to that. Uh, so are, is, is, is that how we're going to do it then? It's the big one and then one B and then two A and then three B or whatever. I, I don't know yes. how, how, how else this to will do catch this on. One. This yes. will catch on with the people. <laughs> It's what, I'm, I'm, it's I'm, I am reluctant to give UEFA too much credit, but honestly, the, the coefficients actually separate this out really well yep. in terms of the, the quality of the league. And, and, and if you look at the points for this season, I mean, the Premier League is way out ahead in number one. Then Spain's a little bit behind. I'm going to give you the points here. So the Premier League is on 106. Then Spain's on 90. Then you have another bump down to the Bundesliga on 81. Then you have another... Well, actually, Serie A and the Bundesliga is pretty close, which feels about right. So Serie A is on 77. Then you have a big jump down to France and you kind of have a France, Netherlands and uh, Portugal all together so uh, Ligue 1 on 60, Netherlands is on 58, then you have the Portuguese League on 55 and all of that kind of feels right, well, they've, they've got that right, I'm, I'm not entirely clear on the arithmetic and the mechanism there but feels about feels spot on uh, they, They've got Austria higher than you, Scotland, Graham, how you feel about that? Not in the table I'm looking at. We're ninth and Austria's just behind us, two points behind us for this season. 36.4 we're on and Austria's 10th. Are you looking 34th. for 22-23? The current, that is the season we're in, yeah. Uh, okay, I'm, I think I'm looking to next season. It looks like Austria <laughs> have edged ahead of you. Yeah, we've got all of Rangers Europa League points to fall off. Ah. So we're going to we're gonna fall down quite significantly. Well, enjoy your, your brief remaining time on top of Austria, Graham, but they're coming for you. So too is this final question from Dr. Spaceman, or I'm going to assume Dr. Leo Spachemin. Uh, that's, that's <laughs> phenomenal work. Uh, should Rangers bring back Steven Gerrard? So they, they already did something pretty close to bringing Gerrard back by hiring Michael Beale, who was Gerrard's assistant. 
I have mentioned this story before on the show, but Emmy Martinez gave a, a pretty revealing interview where he said Gerard and Beal at Aston Villa were, were essentially co-managers in a, in a lot of ways. So Beal led training, did most of the tactical stuff, and Gerard was really there as, as a bit of a, motor, a motivator and, and a figurehead. So while I don't think bringing Gerard back to Rangers now would do much harm, I'm not totally sure it would do much good either. And my feeling right now for Rangers is they're probably going to struggle to get the better of Celtic as long as Postacoglu is there. I, I think, I thought long and hard about this one. I think he might be the best coach we've had in Scottish football ever. And obviously the measure changes because obviously Jock Steen... That is a statement, my friend. That is a statement. So I I mean coach, right? That's the key Ah, word there. I think he's the best coach in terms of his his tactical thinking and how he sets up a team. Obviously, like Jock Steen (laughs) and Sir Alex Ferguson and all these guys are legendary managers. But that's just the thing about modern football, right? As we go on through the years, the coaches get better and and I think Ange Postacoglu has really raised the level in, in Scottish football his teams are just like so clear in how they play and almost every player who gets signed does well for him and Rangers have not been able to keep up keep up with that pace so there might be a manager out there that can bridge the gap I'm really not sure it's Gerard, and I actually think that Michael Beale who's shown himself to be pretty decent tactically so far Maybe he has an even better chance than Gerard of bridging that gap. I think he needs to rebuild that team this summer and do his own thing, and then judge, we'll judge him from there. Graham, will you still feel that way about Ange Postacoglu when he moves to a Premier League team this summer and then is sacked in November? <laughs> yeah, I mean, are Watford getting promoted anytime soon? <laughs> I saw actually today Watford put out a statement saying they weren't sacking a manager, hey! which is, uh, <laughs> is a 180 it's, turn for it's... them. But yeah, I look forward to Postacoglu going to Leeds and lasting like two months. The Jesse Marsh, as they call that. I... I'm glad they put that out. Although with Watford, I feel like it could go the other way of like, not only are we sacking him, we're sending him to the moon. Like it's sacking isn't just enough for us. That's what the announcement is about. Otherwise known as Udinese, <laughs> which they also own. Oh, I was advocating for nuance earlier, and that is a nuanced soccer nerd joke to end this episode. <laughs> Thank you for that and many other things, Graham Ruthven. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. Uh, Joe Lowry, I hope you are as excited for the angry messages from Chelsea fans as I am. Yep, I'm stoked. Bring it on. (laughs) Uh, Listeners, thank you so much for listening. We very much appreciate it. We'll talk to you again soon. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.